Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you on another Tuesday evening, where we are set to continue our reflections into the book of Genesis. Uh, not only chapter 29, but I do think we will get into some of chapter 30. But before we get into Genesis chapters 29 and 30, I did want to uh, warmly welcome all of you who are tuning in, uh, just not by way of KKXX, but also podcast. If you have brought up this program by way of podcast, I welcome you. And and I have to say, you know, and continue to say that it means so much to me to see on my grid that I have people listening all across the state, country, and really the world. I'm looking at uh, the countries right now on a screen, and I see Canada, Mexico, Argentina, Brazil, Chile, all of those same countries. Uh, England, I, I failed to mention England. I had the chance to study in England for three summers at Oxford. Uh, one of the great joys of my life, I dare say, to study in England, as well as Italy, uh, Germany, uh, let's see here, Croatia, Portugal, Spain. I'm looking across the board here, India, China. Again, just, just, just a joy, a joy that you are taking time out of your busy schedule to reflect with me on this particular study, the book of Genesis. Yes, but all of uh, the radio programming we do here at KKXX uh, on Seeds of Truth. So again, a very heartfelt thank you to you. Now, all that being said, we are, again, studying the book of Genesis, and we are in Genesis chapters 29 and 30. So I got a question this past week, and I think I did mention this yesterday, that we would uh, go through verses 29 to 35, and we're really going to get through half of chapter 30. But I said I was not going to read verse 31 because there was going to be some extra time with that verse. And the reason why is because it's in response to a question. So a question has come up as it relates to Jacob and Esau. And it's this language of hate. We read in the prophet Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 to 3, that God loved Jacob, but hated Esau. So the, the question that came to me in the light of what we have been talking about, you know, what is going on here? And as the question continued, and I think this is a fair question if you're reading this text on the surface, if God hated Esau, could God hate me? I mean, is it possible for God to hate me? I thought, gosh, that's a great question within the context of what we are reading on the surface of sacred scripture. So again, what I want to do to start us off this evening is respond to that question. And to do so, I thought we could go back into chapter 29 and read verses 31 to 35. So if you have your Bibles out, if you can turn to chapter 29 and verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, 
Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be joined to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she seized bearing. Okay, so first of all, in these verses with Leah, it wasn't so much that she was despised per se, in as much as she was, if you were to translate the Hebrew literally, less favored, less loved. Okay, so I mention this here because basically this is what you have going on with Jacob and Esau. The point of Malachi chapter 1 verses 2 and 3 points to the fact that the Lord preferred Jacob and his descendants and rejected his brother Esau and his offspring. Now, I suppose this provokes another question, at least it did in me when I was looking at this question initially. <laughs> why did he do this? You know, why is this so? Why did God reject Esau and essentially prefer Jacob? Well, I hate to disappoint you, but he alone knows. But we can highlight some other important verses to at least draw us into an understanding of what's going on here. It is the Apostle Paul who refers to this exact passage as an example of God's what? But divine election and, and providential merciful love. If you were to go to Romans chapter 9, verse 13, there he essentially quotes Malachi chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, when speaking of divine election. God chose to love Jacob and, and hate Esau because this is his choosing. He can have compassion upon who he has compassion and essentially love who he loves in the order of the greater design. So God's providential election is about God's infinite design to bring about the greater order of things, my friends, and ultimately salvation of all mankind. I mean, this brings me back to the story of Job, right? You have <laughs> this great inquisitor, orator, Job. He's constantly asking questions, and he never really gets his question answered other than God finally intervenes and says, hey, Job, were you there when I fashioned the universe? Were you there when I made the waters and the land of the earth? Were you there when I was busy about ordering creation? How can you possibly understand my infinite design and order of things if you do not have my mind? So yes, we can ask all the questions we want, and asking questions are good, but in the end... What's important for us to understand is two things. First of all, it is a difficult thing to know the mind of God, although we are called to pursue the mind of God. And also, the best way to pursue the mind of God is to be in God's presence. Because take note, Job was satisfied not because he got the answer he was looking for, but because he got the answer, capital A, God, God's presence. And then he was satisfied. And then he was made to understand all that he was made to understand up to that point. And that's the biggest point we can make here, that God will reveal to us what we need revealed to us. 
And the more we pursue God, the more God will reveal to us. Remember, God is infinite mystery. He is inexhaustible reality. As it relates to this whole question of God's providential election, I mean, think about it. Decisions are made all the time that don't make sense up until you ask the person about it. Unless you have the mind of the one making the decision and his or her reasoning behind it, it's difficult to understand it, right? So again, herein lies the importance of studying sacred scripture, pursuing God in prayer so that we can come to understand his ways and why maybe they, they are not always in sync with our ways. And oh, by the way, a good place to start is the verse I just quoted, Romans chapter 9, verse 13. Just read Romans chapter 9, verse 13, verse 14, and you will be where you need to be for sure. Okay, as it relates to the question, the important thing I think to bear in mind is that God cannot possibly hate you as his creation, as his son or daughter, right? We know the passage, John chapter 3, verse 16. Brothers and sisters, he loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. In point of fact, he would have done it so if you were the only person who had ever lived. I mean, think about that. Think about that, that, that he was and is so concerned for you that he would do it all over again for you and you alone. That's how madly in love he is with you. That's how passionately in love he is with you. We have talked about God's infinite, absolute, and total love before within the context of his humanity. What am I talking about here? But uh, recall how we have talked about it within the context of his blood, right? That the question has been put out there, if Jesus' blood saves us, could not a drop of his blood saved humanity. I mean, really, isn't it about the divine blood that saves? Uh, yes and no. Yes, it is about his blood that saves and, and his blood on the cross. But to appreciate what he did is to understand that he is fully human. And enough is never enough until it gives everything. As it has been said, there are five and a half to six quarts of uh, blood in the human body. And as such, if that is true, which it is, then Jesus Christ, my friends, had five and a half to six quarts of blood to give, of human blood to give. This is why a drop of blood uh, is not enough. Because Jesus holds nothing back because love itself holds nothing back. Agape, divine sacrificial love, is about holding nothing back. Divine love never says, well, I'm going to do this because I'm going to get something in return. I'm going to help you, but, but what do I get in return? That's the question we so often ask. Essentially, it is human love that calculates. Divine love never calculates. It concerns itself with one thing, and that is to give everything. You see, my friends, this is what lies at the heart of God's unconditional love, and this is the kind of love that he has for you and I. I'm thinking of that great passage that comes to us from John chapter 3, 
I think it's verses 33 and, and 34 and following, where Jesus says he will give to us the Holy Spirit, a gift that he does not portion out, a gift that he does not measure out. Why would Jesus say that about the gift of the Holy Spirit, mindful that the Holy Spirit is his very love, of course, the love shared between the Father and the Son? Why would he say that? Why would Jesus say, I don't portion out my love or, or I don't measure out my love? Because when you give everything, what is there to portion? What is there to measure out? But nothing, right? Now, I know this might be hard for some of us because we portion out and we measure out everything. I'm going to portion out uh, the money I made today, a little bit for you, uh, a, a little bit for you, and so on and so forth. We portion out our time. I'm going to make sure I spend a little bit of time with you and a little bit of time with you and so on and so forth. And these aren't bad things, but I'm just making a simple point. This is why it is so hard for us to think of this in context of love, because we, we are so busy portioning out our money, our time, our love, so on and so forth. Okay, so we have to be present to this, especially in light of Romans chapter 9, verse 13. We read in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 9, But do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. What is Peter talking about there? Well, he, he's making the distinction between a kairos and chronos. Kairos in the Greek is God's time, uh, grace time, purpose-driven time. Chronos is man's time. We're familiar with the word chronology, the study of time, the study of man's time, that which is linear. All of those things we put into our iPads and iPhones, or maybe if you're anything like me, you still actually have a calendar, a physical calendar that you, you actually write in. And that's all chronos. Kairos is when God invades uh, what we do and now gives shape and form to what we do in the light of God. So yeah, Peter says here, but do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. This is Kairos. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is forbearing towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So I read this passage, my friends, because we need to be present to that overarching truth that God's deepest desire is that we desire God as much as God desires us. And if we are going to desire God as much as God desires us, we have to repent that no one should perish, which should always have us thinking about that all-important passage that comes to us from Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, this call we have to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Now, again, continuing to respond to the question and, and draw out a reflection, another way we can look at this, this question specific to if God hates Esau, is it possible for God to hate us, is that if God rejected us, <laughs> we wouldn't be wrestling with this issue, right? Your mind would be so blind and, and your heart so hard and that, 
that you'd never give him a passing thought. So the very fact that you're thinking about this suggests that no, God hasn't rejected you. He loves you. And we are aware of this love because you're asking the question. If you had no concern for God, then there would be a time to be concerned. But that is not the case here. This is why I have always said is it is so important to be asking questions and why it is equally important to not always answer a question with an answer, but maybe with another question to make sure that the initial question being asked is what it ought to be. So yeah, Q&As are good, but how about a Q&Q? Asking questions is important because it has us taking ownership of who we are and where we are at. All right, now, on a more general level, the Bible does make several references to God's hatred. Not of individuals, though, per se, but of course, sin and unrighteousness. Here I'm thinking of Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19. These six things the Lord hates, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, hands that shed innocent blood. Hear that, those who think abortion is okay. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies and one who sows discord among brethren. Whew, those... <laughs> realities should humble all of us, my friends. Also, we read in Zechariah chapter 8, verse 17, all their wickedness is in Gilgah, but there I hated them because of the evil of their deeds. I will drive them from my house. Uh, that actually was Hosea chapter 9, verse 15. This is Zechariah chapter 8, verse 17. Let none of you think evil in your heart against your neighbor and do not love a false oath. For all of these things I hate, says the Lord, right? So these are the things that God despises. He despises sin. Now, it is also important to balance John's declaration that God is love, that we read in 1 John chapter 4, his first epistle, uh, chapter 4, with Hebrews' assertion, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, that our God is a consuming fire. As we all know, a fire can be, yes, both comforting, but also destructive. It all depends on how you approach that fire and where you stand in relation to that fire. I think it's fair to say that love and hate are really two sides of the same coin, right? Because you can't love a specific quality or attribute without hating its opposite. This is why you've heard me say before that behind every no is an immeasurable greater yes. Because you are both loving and hating at the same time. Loving one thing and hating the opposite of the thing you love. Alright. Let's put this whole reflection into the context of Romans chapter 12 verses 10 to 13. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdoing one another in showing honor. Never flag in zeal. Be aglow with the Spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in your hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Practice hospitality. So it's almost as if 
and this is just coming to my mind right now, I don't have a developed reflection on this or some sort of systematic reflection on this, but Romans chapter 12, verses 10 to 13 counteracts, if you will, Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19. So if you want to overcome those sins of pride, lying, the heart that devises wicked plans, so on and so forth, as Proverbs chapter 6 spoke to it, then enter into the dynamism of Romans chapter 12, verses 10 to 13. That beautiful expression of what it means to love and have a heart of service. Okay, so just by way of postscript to the question itself, all of this is very important in relationship to, I think, some of the politicking going on today that would have us hitting the mute button to all forms of hate, which would include speaking up on important religious issues. You know, I just spoke to Proverbs chapter 6, and we just read that God hates those who would shed innocent blood. That eternal, loving, merciful, unconditional God hates those who would shed innocent blood. Does he have mercy on that person? Of course, he would respond to a repentant heart. And if you are one who is sharing in that participation of the shedding of innocent blood, repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. But make no mistake about it, my friends. The Holocaust of abortion is a great, the great tragedy of the 21st century. And for this, all the more while why we are called to love and run to the woman who has more often than not made the decision against her own will. At least that's what my experience has shown me. We are to mercifully love those who are a part of this act in every conceivable possible way. So, again, <laughs> we are called to speak up on these important issues. Uh, if Satan would have his druthers, he, he would have us stop talking about sin and the chastening of his sinner in the name of what but a hate crime. This is some of the politicking going on. We dub certain things as hate crimes, and all we're doing as Christians is simply speaking up as God would have us speak up. But see, Satan wants to drown out that voice of reason. One thing we can be certain of as it relates to the prophets is that a prophet was never popular, right? Why? Because he was a big mouth. By the way, the Hebrew word for prophet literally translates as God's mouthpiece, and, any, and every prophet in their time was considered a big mouth because they were speaking up against the tide. They were not loved that way. We read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, that for the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. This is a very important verse to us because that verse suggests what? That we need to be reminded that being called out is what is necessary as a son or daughter of God, right? It is quintessential. You know, as a father, I get this. Because from time to time, I need to call out my children and what they are doing. Because if I don't, they are just going to continue their pattern of behavior. A pattern that down the road is very destructive. 
and may harm their souls. So it is my duty as a father to chasten them and call them out. Well, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we have the duty and responsibility to challenge one another, always in reverence and gentleness, as I've talked about so much, but all the while, nonetheless, to challenge one another. Okay, I'm looking up at the clock, and we don't have a whole lot of time left, but I do just want to make a point about chapter 30. We have really from chapter 29, verse 32, through chapter 30, verse uh, 24, the birth of the 12 sons. And so what I'm going to go ahead and do here uh, is read some of this and just offer up a brief reflection. So this is chapter 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister, and she said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my maid Bilhah. Go into her, that she may bear upon my knees, and even I may have children through her. So she gave him her maid Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Rachel's maid, Bilhah, conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. What do you have going on in these verses? You have the birth of one, and then you have this phrase, So she called. Each of the eleven sons born to Jacob outside the promised land, involve this kind of wordplay related to the circumstances of their birth, and again, kind of point to their role in salvation history. I mean, consider, by Leah, Jacob fathered who but Reuben? He saw my distress. That's what Reuben means. Simeon means he has heard. Levi. Levi is a Hebrew name that means he will cling. Judah. Judah means I will praise. What did we read in 29 verse 35? This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. See, see the circumstances there. How about Issachar? Issachar is a name that means he has hired. Zebulon, he will honor me. By Rachel's maid, Bilhah, who we just noted, Dan means what, but he has judged. Naphtali, my struggle. By Leah's maid, Zilpah, he fathered Gad, which means good fortune. Asher, which means my happiness. By Rachel, and this, of course, is what is so important to uh, Rachel and the divine election between Jacob and Rachel, he fathered Joseph, and of course, Joseph means he may add. Jacob's 12th son, Benjamin, son of the right hand, was born years later near Bethlehem in Palestine. We'll talk more about that in chapter 35. The point I want to make here is this, my friends, is that <laughs> when we see a name in sacred scripture, translate what that name means, and you're going to see not only the circumstances that surrounded the birth, but also Again, this kind of foreordained purpose and vocation 
into salvation history. We see it with Joseph for sure, he may add. What's more, when we personalize this truth, especially as parents, we ought to consider and be mindful of the very gratuitous gift that we have in being given children and the kind of spiritual jurisdiction we've been given to name those children, how we kind of share in God's infinite wisdom, in God's infinite providential design. Once we name our child their name, this is their name, right? And there should be great significance to this name. So we should see this as a kind of sacred calling that we have as parents to name our child what we name them. Think of my own name, Joseph. Well, you know what Joseph means. I just spoke to it. He may add, the Hebrew there can also translate as guardian, kind of a guardian of truth. Well, of course, the foster father, Joseph, was a guardian of truth. So I, I have this vocation before me, if I'm going to live up to my name, to, by way of guarding truth, Christian truth, adding to the Christian faith. And so we kind of all have that vocation before us to just kind of to consider, to contemplate, to reflect with what our name means and, and if God would have something for us. So if you don't know what your name means, maybe that's a, your homework assignment for the night, okay? All right, well, we are out of time. Let us go ahead and wrap up with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you special thanks and praise for the gift of this time we have to reflect upon the beauty and richness of your spoken word. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.